Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series, where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country research on improving systems of education endeavour funded by UK Aid, Australian Aid and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Welcome to this episode of the RISE podcast. My name is Julius Atura, a research fellow on the RISE program. Today, I'm hosting Dr. Adedeji Adeniran, who is the Director of Research at the Center for the Study of the Economies of Africa, SISI, based in Abuja, Nigeria. SISI is an organization committed to contributing to better policies on the continent by bridging the existing critical research gaps in various thematic areas, including human capital development. In this episode, Deja and I focus on SISI's basic education research. We touch on the journey that has seen the center's education work evolve over time, unlocking the full potential value of data in diagnosing and solving the learning crisis in the sub-Saharan African region, while asking some rarely asked data questions, touching on opening up of the black box that the classroom still is. We also touch on CC's collaborative work with RISE, including findings from their recently published paper on primary curriculum effectiveness in Nigeria and Deji's highlighting of the importance of goal coherence across education system actors in the region. Deji, thank you for making time for this conversation and welcome to the RISE podcast. Thank you, Julius. I'm very happy to be here this afternoon and um, hope we have a nice conversation around the education sector in Africa. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Most of all because uh, I've had a few opportunities in the last two years uh, to experience aspects of some of your education work in West Africa that we are going to touch on today. So let's start with your organization, the Center for the Study of the Economies of Africa and its education work in Nigeria. What is the primary focus of this work and how did it come about? Also, Uh, Our listeners might also appreciate learning a bit about your engagement with other education actors in Nigeria and the region. Thank you so much, Julius. Um, Center for Study of Economics of Africa, um, we like to call ourselves CC. Um, When we started about 15 years ago, we actually focused on public financial management and macroeconomic tracking as our core kind of objectives. Because when we look at the policy space in Nigeria, we see that as kind of the major issues that um, in terms of, um, I mean, we talk about governance, corruptions, and some of the big reforms at that point in time has always focused on public sector reforms and public financial management reforms. And so that's actually why Sisi was established as an institution that can actually support uh, capacity of public institution in that aspect. And when we speak even whether in any sector, education, health, or whatever sector we speak about, how our own approach has always been, I mean, in, in, in the initial phase of the organization, around financial requirement to achieve a goal or the financial problem of financing gap. And so the question, uh, or the answers to us, to most questions, has always revolved around financing. And when we started actually working on education, I mean, looking at education sector in Nigeria, that's also the kind of starting point for us. We started by asking the question, what are the financial uh, needs to Nigeria, for example, meeting MDGs? What are the financial gaps that the country is facing uh, in, in that aspect? And we were really, really thinking at that point in time that financing is the problem because we, we, we put the number down and we say, oh, we need so huge amount of both domestic resources, both donor resources in order to achieve um, MDGs then. And even when the conversation around SDG started, because we participated as part of Think Tank in Global South in putting our contribution out in what should be as part of SDGs. I recall vividly that um, I was working on that aspect of the work at CC then, and all our focus was what are the M, uh, financing uh, structure needs to look like for country to meet SDGs. And we're talking about then, oh, the role of domestic financing, the role of uh, private sector and all of that. 
But when we started, I mean, when we when that shift comes about in terms of when CC started working um, around SDGs, I think the realization comes to us that it's beyond financing. That there is other thing that is important for us to achieve a goal. And what started that conversation is our work. We, we started tracking SDGs um, in various sectors. And one of the sectors we initially started to track is education. And we asked the question, what is the data need um, in terms of key development indicators to say Nigeria is moving up or down on, or on track to achieve SDGs 4, for example? What data do we have and what, what do we need to achieve in terms of all of that? And we find that, okay, even the number in terms of financing is not just enough. We need something more. I mean, we need to understand a lot more in terms of the structural systemic issues that is really, really being faced. I mean, we have teacher development and deployment. We have classroom situation. We have student preparedness in terms of maybe access to uh, nutrition, uh, preschool issue. We have government in terms of even when resources are available, uh, maybe we are not deploying into places that actually can really maximize uh, social outcomes. So when we look at all of that problem, I think that really was the starting point for CC in terms of looking, trying to search deeper into what the problem of education sector in a country like Nigeria look like. And when we started this process, um, the first thing we realized is the issue of data. Because then we wanted to track SDGs. And we find out that most of the data we talked about, really, um, there's actually even no data uh, that can really say this is how much uh, kids are learning at the end of primary schools. And that most of the data sets that we speak about, like um, the big, um, uh, we call it WIAC, West African Examination Council, um, these are something of interest to most people because it's, it's what everybody wants to really, uh, we rank sometimes states in Nigeria, rank, is it performing very well on WIAC or not? These very high-stake examinations, it's actually what we speak to before, but now there's more realization, the fact that that doesn't really, really tell you the extent of the problem because there are many situations that um, uh, literature has already identified around high-stake exams. So, when we look at available data like DHLs, I mean, it's not really rigorous enough to really speak to what is going on because of also many lim uh, limitations around the data set. So what we ended up in, in our search is to, first of all, try to look and catalog the existing data sets on the education system and to say this is what each of them is speaking to. And in most cases, most of them are not speaking or doesn't give you enough information to say this is the state of education for you to even write, either track SDGs or even do anything around uh, learning crisis. So what we started doing is look at that such data set and um, maybe with some more kind of how can we tease out more information uh, beyond this obvious one. So for example, we have a data set called... Um, Nigeria Education uh, Data Survey, uh, NETS, and that data itself, when you look at it, it says, oh, 55% uh, performance rate among people that finish, uh, among people in primary schools. And we pick that data and say, okay, when you look at what is tested and the curriculum, there is a very big mismatch. If we really center this assessment to what is being uh, taught in classrooms, or centered it around assessment, which means expected proficiency to what uh, uh, the pass rate is. We are getting a number around 17% in terms of um, performance rate. So that gives us the sense that we really, really, I mean, the data is not giving us the full picture. And I think the starting points of what we started doing is um, advocacy around better data for um, to track performance indicators, and more importantly, we also started talking about uh, the need for us to dive deep into other issues 
other than finance? What are the issues around incoherence? What are the teach- uh, issues around um, teachers? What are the issues around other actors? For example, the demand side actors, communities. Uh, also, there are many innovations and interventions, both locally and um, donor-driven. And all of these interventions, we started actually becoming interested in how have they changed the landscape of education in Nigeria. And I think that's a sort of story of CIS in terms of starting up as a um, public financial um, management kind of outlook to more kind of rigorous education um, outlook whereby our focus becomes what happens within the education value chain across the key actors rather than um, just talking about government needs to pump in money. Or, so what do we even, what is even the problem? I think that's, that's been our journey in terms of um, um, research around education system in Nigeria. The other aspect um, is around how our engagement with key stakeholders in the Nigerian um, sphere. And I mean, one thing to recognize about Nigeria is it's a big country. I mean, it's the largest country in Africa. Um, but it's also a federating kind of unit. We have the central government, we have 36 states, and we have 774 local governments. And all of these play a role in education sector. But even more importantly, when you look at the basic education structure, it's actually a, a role um, that's it's the subnationals, the state and the local government that play the huge role in terms of management, even establishment of most of these institutions. So we then have a situation whereby, I mean, as an institution, we are based in Abuja, but core of our work is actually uh, going on across the state. Sometimes uh, we can't be in all of these states, but what we try to do or what we prioritize is partnership. So in the Nigeria uh, ecosystem, we partner with other set of actors. Um, some actors actually have penetration at some part of the country, and we work with them. Uh, but also we partner with academia, with um, also as, uh, upcoming researchers. They're also working in different aspects in these various places, such that we build a community that speaks to themselves, and we can address the problem of education sector in Nigeria um, as a whole. But more importantly, all CC work, um, all, all our work, we've tried to prioritize curating um, not just we doing research, but we take uh, the part of policy engagement and communication very serious. And what we do in this aspect is one, um, all of, almost of our, uh, our research, we don't just disseminate it sitting down in Abuja or doing webinars. We actually go into these communities to actually integrate our communication and dissemination strategy, whereby we speak directly to people affected by this work and what is happening there. But also, um, we leverage on the fact that sometimes research built on the evidence. What I mean by that is um, uh, that we do a research and we find this big uh, evidence, uh, I mean, or big, these big findings, doesn't constitute an evidence. We want it to, because we know that our work needs to actually be linked with other work. When we see strong evidence emerging in the literature, I think we also play the role of advocates, whereby we work developing tools for governments uh, that they could, or policymakers, or even other stakeholders, we, we create tools that they could actually use in uh, sometimes addressing the problem. But we have some tools like uh, the learning trajectory tools we, uh, that we've curated. So all of that, we are working together to make sure that um, we could better uh, work with other key stakeholders in the Nigerian settings in order to uh, draw on the points of what our research is, that there's a learning crisis and there's need for more synergies between everyone to work together in terms of addressing them. Thank you. That's quite exciting. It's an exciting journey that CC has been through and an adaptation journey, actually. You starting out with a focus on uh, public financing in education and then uh, transitioning into a focus on data and not just data, but the quality of the data too. 
So all this complexity too of Nigeria as a federal uh, system and what that brings along. And in emphasizing that actually, the point that we usually forget is the complexity of education work uh, by design in that we usually tend to reduce uh, education work or everything that happens around learning into what goes on inside the classroom. But uh, this issue of the complexity of the structure in Nigeria really brings back uh, or highlights what is at the heart of uh, the work that RISE has been doing, looking at uh, uh, the education system as a system that is composed of very many actors and actors that are interacting in many different ways and all these interactions being very important for children's learning. Now, let's take a deeper dive into the problem of low learning in the global south and uh, specifically zero in on the sub-Saharan African region. According to the World Bank's learning poverty measures, uh, over 90% of 10-year-olds in the region cannot read a simple sentence with meaning. And as I've mentioned earlier, at RISE we view this crisis through a systems lens. What's your take about the low levels of learning in this region? And uh, what is your point of departure, if any, regarding how, how you view what is necessary for a thorough diagnosis of the learning crisis that's affecting the sub-Saharan African region? Okay, thanks. I mean, as someone that lives on the continent um, and being also someone that actually have to be part of the system, in, either as a parent and also in some various aspects as a key stakeholders in the in that sector, I mean, it's worrisome when you look at that number. And you see there are many, two, I mean, many perspectives to look at it. Um, one is denial. I mean, and, and I think you might have seen a study that actually asks policymakers to look at um, the extent of the problem in their uh, context. And they said oh, almost all of them underestimates um, the level of the problem based on the data that, that they were provided. On the question around the learning crisis in Africa, I mean, the number is quite worrisome. And for someone based on the continent, um, as a parent and as a researcher, I think it's, it's a question you really try to grapple with uh, around why do we have so big a number not learning? And um, why does it take even so long for us to start talking about it? And you see, one thing you you could have seen, and I think the literature paints this picture. I mean, there is a recent study that shows that um, policymakers they underestimate the level of learning crisis, and that perspective of denying or trying or not gr fully grappling the problem, I think, is part of the um, data crisis I mentioned, because sometimes we don't actually know this data. Or that the way we actually even approach this data is in a way that underestimates some of the numbers. And so we don't actually see the full picture. And that um, affects in terms of whatever we do. So one, one, one example I can give for that is um, when you look at um, what's the number in terms of learning or tracking learning that policymakers do refer to, in most instances, it's actually the in-school children children in school. But if you want to really know the level of learning in your country, it's actually the condition of both those in school and those out of school. And so when you look at this picture vividly, you see clearly that um, there's a lot of uh, things we need to do because um, learning crisis, in a way, it's also a data crisis. What I mean by data crisis is the fact that um, the story around learning crisis, we begin to actually appreciate it. And we begin to even talk about the problem more because now we have a way to track learning. And we have a consensus around measurement and we have a consensus about what do we need to even improve upon. I mean, 10 years ago, look at it. I mean, this week, uh, the Gate Foundation releases their um, Goatkeepers um, 
uh, report. But if you check the early part of that report in 2015, 2016, if you move to the part on SDG4, there's actually no indicator being tracked because we don't actually even have a consensus around measurement then. But now when we start to measure this thing, I think one obvious thing um, to, hi to highlight is the fact that most of the people um, which should not be discouraged around uh, uh, the, the point of learning crisis first is the fact that even data still shows that people in school are still learning more than those out of school. So in as much as we have the learning crisis, being in school is still better. But what we need to do is addressing this in-school problem around how we can make our school system better and speak better to people, uh, uh, to young people that are passing through the system. And um, in, in that sense, I think we need to really speak about assessment data. Because most times, I mean, we could speak to large-scale assessments. And the availability of this really, really accepts in that conversation. However, going forward too, it might not be the only thing uh, to really think about in terms of assessment. Um, just about two months ago, we just completed a survey whereby we are doing um, assessment practices in uh, Nigerian schools. And we surveyed about 100 schools. And one of the revealing findings from that work is the fact that um, in schools, um, the only assessment teachers really relate to is more of exams and tests. And most times, the average number of times this is conducted is one or two, right? Um, I mean, these are public schools. Uh, quiz and other assessments are not really, really engaged. I mean, they don't engage students in this area. And so you find the fact that um, in most instances, we don't even know what is going on in schools. And when we talk about large-scale assessments also, sometimes um, teachers, parents, community, they don't relate to this. Reason being that it doesn't speak to them. Um, when you talk about how many people are learning in Nigeria, that's Nigeria. But how many people are learning in my classrooms? Um, how many people are learning in my community? Is my uh, child learning what he should learn in school? Sometimes we don't actually speak, I mean, com uh, comfortably this um, um, fact to these key stakeholders. And so part of what we need to do in, um, in addressing the problem is not just to look at um, just one assessment as the key. I think we need to talk about classroom assessment better. We also need to talk about how do we speak, ensure that... Um, uh, the classrooms and what is going on outside the classroom are speaking to one another. And I'm saying that for assessment, but it's also extend beyond just assessment. Uh, we need to say, okay, um, a teacher in the classroom situation, um, what are the factors influencing what he does in the classrooms? If we understand that factors very well, I think outside actors, which in many places, we do all sorts of things. If we understand classroom better, we will know what we need to bring and how we need to actually help um, the two uh, actors in that uh, settings. I mean, the teachers and the children. We need to help them, but we need to understand what is going on there for you to help. But bringing an outside help uh, because you think that's the best without understanding fully what is going on in the classroom, I think it will be creating more problem um, and less solution. And that's part of what we should start thinking vividly about what can we do to help uh, teachers, children in the classroom settings? What can we do to even unpack what is going on in the classroom? If we can do that, I think we, we will start addressing the problem. Thank you. Thank you. So the raw, the types uh, of, uh, of data, uh, especially the assessment data and the roles that each of these different assessments plays is critically important. Yeah, I, I do, I, I can relate with the fact that parents might not really make a lot of sense out of large-scale assessments because probably they are not, they don't relate to how they see the learning. Most of the times you find that parents are only thinking about whether their children have passed the exam and if that exam has allowed them to progress the next grade, that is meaningful. 
But if you do a large-scale assessment that doesn't have those associated high stakes, probably parents are not going to use that. So that's quite important. And uh, also data on other aspects of learning, as you have uh, highlighted, it's quite an important aspect. Now I'd like to build on where you, you just ended talking about what happens inside the classroom. And uh, we try to, I've had you uh, use the analogy at some point uh, of uh, referring to the classroom as a black box to describe, as you describe the processes that take place inside the classroom. And I would like to first ask you what happens inside classrooms in Nigeria. And then uh, also, why is it important to open this classroom black box? And well, first of all, how do you also do it? How do you open the, that black box of the classroom? Big question. Um, so, I mean, the analogy of black box, I think, speaks to two things. Um, I mean, when you, when you talk about black box, you, you look at something that you don't know what is inside, right? But we also know that the black box is more than that. I mean... When plane, when they crashed, uh, black box is actually where you know what is going on. Um, so the I mean that analogy is just to speak the fact that um, um, first we don't know what is going on. Uh, I mean sometimes policymakers, especially researchers, we don't actually have that kind of grasp of classroom because it's not an economic question. It's actually an education question. is a is a, is a, is a society question. Um, it, it's it's a lot of factors beyond just um, research and um, our research kind of as economics or uh, in other aspects. So that black box is important. And the other aspect of the analogy is the fact that you can actually not know or improve what has going on. I mean. There's a crisis, just like we have a plane crash. If you want to know what happened in that crash, that black box, you need to find it, know what is inside, and that will reveal to you the problem. And that's actually the analogy of why classrooms is a black box and that we need to actually unfold what is going on there for us to actually uh, solve the problem. And this is it. If you look at a classroom setting very well, we have two key actors, the teachers, the students, and the interaction between them. Um, however, you find that almost all other agents are trying to influence one or two of these act uh, of these things. Is either a curriculum body trying to influence teacher and what is being taught, or someone talking about pedagogy, whereby okay, how the teaching uh, teaching process should be, or someone set in terms of time duration of even class settings or parents providing, making sure that the child comes to school, um, providing the right nutrition and food system, uh, mental health and everything for the, um, uh, uh, the child to be present in school. I mean, not just being in school, but to be present mentally in school. I mean, also government. So all of these actors, they try to influence this uh, agency. But, I mean, when we talked about assessment, you know, it has an influence on the teachers because if as a teacher, all that matters is the extent to which your uh, words pass the exam. As a school system, what you're actually being evaluated is, is that's this kind of um, um, end of the cycle examination and how much your school is performing. If we um, speak to that, it also means that what happened in the classroom is being influenced by assessments that they will face in future. So what we are saying is that almost all of these actors or actions you can think of, they actually have a way of influencing what is going on in the classrooms. And if we understand clearly what is going on in that aspect, it is when we can actually know whether our solution will work or not. Um, so. The idea is let's know the interactions or the influence that they have on this uh, school system or the classroom settings and practices. When we know that action, then we can actually start evaluating any intervention to what extent would they improve or um, uh, destroy those kind of interactions that exist then. And I think that's the starting conversation for really talking about addressing learning crisis is we understanding that black box. Um, probing into it, seeing what we could learn 
and using and designing innovations around that? It's a very important one. It's a very important point of the different actors interacting together for learning to take place. And uh, especially when you think of the various actors in a system, it's quite a broad array of different actors coming together. So this really ties in nicely with where we began talking about your engagement with uh, various actors, CC engaging different actors in the Nigerian context and in the Nigerian setup. And the RISE program emphasizes relationships and interactions within the system. So over the years, your organization has partnered with RISE on education work in Nigeria. What have you learned from this partnership or collaboration? And if I can ask about your recently published uh, work, uh, I know that recently you've put out a paper on the effectiveness of the primary curriculum in Nigeria. Could you briefly uh, also explain this strand of work and share its key findings? Thank you. Um, I mean, RICE Nigeria, I mean, the work we embarked in, in as part of the RICE Nigeria was quite um, high-opening because um, the work actually centered around the role of demand-side actors. And we try to actually look at not just what government can do more, but what society could do more. And that's actually looking at the role of um, politics. We look at the role of um, school management uh, boards. We look at the role of parents. And we even look at historical past, whereby, I mean, our education came into Nigeria and how community and key individuals, the role they play in the transmission of that um, education sector. And we track the persistent effect of education over time within the society. And all of that paint the picture in terms of um, historically education propagation in Nigeria. And I would say for most African countries, has actually been a kind of a, a, a demand side push. But in terms of demand, in terms of the politics, maybe through people making clamoring through their voices on the key stakeholders to, to demand for more education, or even society themselves setting up resources and playing a role in actually um, improving or ensuring that school is established and school is well governed and that uh, school system can promote the values of the community. And also, um, the community can also be part of that conversation. And, and because, I mean, at some point in time, everybody were like, education is key. So every society, every community want to be part of it. And that's actually the story of education in Nigeria that was told in this work. right? And we are telling that story, I think, to paint the picture for the fact that um, maybe when we are talking about learning crisis also, there remains a role for the society needs to play. I mean, the, a role for parents in terms of support, but also in terms of even monitoring and tracking progress. Community and parents could play that role very vividly. They've played it in the past and they could still continue to play that role. I think one aspect um, that was quite interesting in, in the Nigerian rise was the deliberative um, forums that was organized as part of trying to understand the political economy and politics around education reforms in Nigeria. Uh, and these deliberative forums are meetings where we bring various stakeholders, parents will be there, government representatives will be there, um, community representatives will be there, all these key stakeholders, they meet together and they discuss and reach consensus around priority for education sector within their community. And over time, we then track how that kind of um, deliberation, the influence it has in terms of participation in, in education sector, maybe are, are they likely to be more involved in, for example, school management board, the influence is even had on the politicians in terms of improving on their commitment, in terms of even the way they engage with the community. So that's actually what we try to study as part of that work. 
And I think I can really um, summarize the rice research, uh, Nigerian rice work in, 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 in this way. It's actually about understanding the role of demand-side actors. But I think it's also telling us about how we need to think around learning crisis as not just one side of the equation, not the government. Everybody could, needs to play a role. So we actually bring in the, to that conversation those roles that community has played and can play in education reforms, the, com the roles that parents has played and can continue to play in the education sector. And I think that's actually the, the, uh, the, the vocal point of uh, the Nigerian rice work. And I think um, the other aspect of it is the, the work has actually also evolved so much. Like We are not just looking at what is happening to these key actors. We are also looking at the classroom settings. And not just looking at the classroom settings through assessment alone, because it's not just assessment that takes place in, in the classroom. Teaching takes place, but not just the teaching alone. There are many things that take place. So, um, Part of that work is what we uh, what we just published um, on the Soviet enacted curriculum and trying to elicit what is going on in classroom. Because, I mean, when you ask the question initially about what is going on in the classrooms and how do you know what is even going on, Soviet enacted curriculum is a systematic way to unravel that. And the idea is very simple. It tells us that... When you talk about curriculum, don't think about curriculum as just one, this format document produced and everybody's really, really trying to implement and address it. Think about curriculum in different dimensions, and we can think about it in four dimensions. The first one is the intended curriculum or the former curriculum, that document that government produced and they label it curriculum. Right? But we can also think about it, how government want that curriculum to be implemented and so um, sort of teacher's guide or textbooks that really supports this format document in terms of how it will be translated to, from the vision of the drafter of the curriculum to what really is being taught within the classrooms. That's actually one aspect of it, the intended curriculum. However, we cannot assume that what is intended is the same thing as what is being taught in the classroom. Everything might be covered, a subset might be covered, or even something else might be covered. And that's why we refer to um, the part of the curriculum that is implemented in the classroom as the enacted curriculum. And the survey of enacted curriculum is actually trying to survey that part, but it's doing more than that. It's also looking at... Uh, Another aspect, which is what is being taught, is not everything that the children also grabbed for various reasons. Um, student absenteeism is a factor. But even when children are in school, maybe because of foundational uh, uh, knowledge that they are lacking, they might not actually be picking up what is being taught. Um, they may be distracted. All sorts of things could happen. So for that reason, it's also important to differentiate between the enacted one and the learned curriculum. And the last part of the curriculum to really think about is what we call the assessed curriculum. Again, we can sometimes really think that um, assessment is based on curriculum. But in most instances, um, we need to actually ask that question and we need to interrogate. So the assessed curriculum is the part of uh, the intended curriculum or enacted curriculum that is being actually assessed. And what we want to know is the fact that if you look at all these various curriculum, it is actually being um, different actors are responsible. Intended curriculum, the curriculum bodies, the government are involved in curating that. The enacted curriculum revolves around the teachers. The uh, learned curriculum involves around the kids and their own capacity. And the assessed curriculum involves around the examination bodies. And each of these actors, if we don't actually understand both the intention and um, to what extent they are speaking to one another 
and we just assume that, oh, they are speaking to one another, I think that might be a problem. That might create a problem. And that could be the source of incoherence we speak about in the education system. And so why we actually picked, because our interest um, really moved towards understanding that black box I referred to, I think then we look around and say, what kind of methodology enable us to really penetrate that. And I think we find the survey of enacted curriculum to be a very innovative technology in that regard. So we embark on that research to, ap to apply uh, that techniques to study what is going on between classrooms, uh, curriculum, assessment in Nigeria. And I think the findings really justify why that kind of work is needed among developing countries going forward in terms of really unraveling what's going on in the classroom. So in the Nigerian study, what we find is that um, first, when you look at the intended curriculum and the enacted curriculum, there's actually um, a, a high degree of correlation, which means there's an overlap. I mean, teachers are really teaching a lot of what is in the curriculum. Also, when you look at uh, the assessed curriculum, and the curriculum itself, former curriculum again, you see the fact that um, it's drawn from one another. But when you look at the um, land curriculum in terms of student performance, it's quite low. So because this uh, analysis enables us to see where there is match and mismatch, what we find is the fact that um, there is difference between procedural learning and conceptual learning. And that is actually implicit in the curriculum. I mean, the, the curriculum moved from procedural to conceptual skills. And expectation is also of that in the classrooms, of that in the assessment. But that's actually not what we find. We find that, that teachers actually, the high correlation, high alignment that we see is between that um, procedural part of the enacted curriculum and the procedural part of the curriculum. And so there's a high degree of correlation at the pro, uh, procedural level and weak correlation in the conceptual level. And so when kids are tested in those conceptual parts, the pass rate is low. When they are tested on, uh, on that, um, uh, the procedural part, the performance is relatively better. So we are already seeing the picture that it's not just an alignment in those these two. It has to be aligned in a way that generates the highest educational performance level, which means it needs to be aligned at the right level. And I think the alignment we want to see is the conceptual alignment between from the intended curriculum to the enacted one, to the learned one, and to the assessed one. And that's actually what we are not seeing. And so, again, that gives us a sense of what is going on in the classroom in terms of more emphasis on the procedure, less emphasis on the conceptual. And because of that, most of the learning crisis, you've, uh, I mean, when you've not measured performance in that way, you see low performance because... Um, it's, it's, it's not working in a way it's intended because we intend that you move from procedure to the conceptual. But if there is not that movement, for many reasons, maybe the teachers are incompetent, maybe the teachers are not even spending the right quality of time, maybe the kids are absent for most time in order to make that jump. If there is not that jump, we still continue to see the learning crisis we are having. So if we have actually not embarked on that research, you could have said, okay, let's increase the number of hours from one to two. Let's do these interventions. But when you understand that, it is more about what is going on in the classrooms. So I think it makes us to ask the right question. Do the teacher have the right pedagogical knowledge? Do the teacher have the right uh, content skills? Right, in order to actually even add uh, uh, the students coming to the classroom, are they well prepared in terms of concentration? Have they eaten? As simple as that question can be uh, revealing. Um, I mean, do they have the even the foundational skills? What they need to know before actually even you are introducing this uh, concept to them. All of that needs to actually be well understood, and I think that's kind of question we've started asking in terms of why. 
is that that gap between uh, why, why even teachers are not transitioning to this um, higher level? Why do they concentrate on this higher level, even at when curriculum predict that they will have moved? So in a way, we are seeing those kind of gap, and that's actually, for us, the vocal point for intervention. It's a very, very nuanced conversation, Deji, uh, listening to the insights that you've uh, picked from this uh, latest study. Thank you for sharing those very recently emerged insights from your study. Uh, it brings concreteness. This methodology that you describe brings concreteness to what you have been describing as uh, the, the black box inside the classroom and really helps, I mean, this explanation you give from procedural to conceptual. So many times we really find that we think that if children are able to repeat what they've been told or be able to solve the same question that they were told to solve, then that's learning. But what you're saying now is that uh, the children should be able to take what they have learned to do procedurally and translate it into their real life so that if you if you change the question but remained on the same principles of what was told, they should be able to translate that and understand. Then you can understand that the concept has actually been grasped. It's really, really insightful and quite a nuanced conversation and a call to reimagine the goals, uh, the structure, the design of the primary curriculum, the education curriculum itself, and also to, I think also teachers, they have a big, I mean, in a setting like Nigeria and many of our countries in the sub-Saharan African region where exams are everything and the exams come at the end of the cycle, I can imagine how tough it is to to change uh, the perspective of the teacher to focus on the conceptual if the exams, for example, are focusing mainly on the procedural. Thank you so much, Deji, for sharing these insights. Uh, very recently emerged insights, I must emphasize. Uh, as someone also who was involved in uh, similar studies in East Africa, it is quite exciting to see these systems the instructional coherent studies taking root and spreading uh, ever broader in the sub-Saharan African region. I think these studies are quite revealing. That brings us to the final part of this podcast, that point at which we ask our guests this question. What is the one thing you wish other people knew about the education system in Nigeria or education systems in sub-Saharan Africa? Wow. So, if there is something I would like to really, really be vocal about about the education system in, in Africa, um, is to say that um, first, when we talk about the learning crisis, it's what it's a journey for us, right? Um, we have this big system that for a long period of time, uh, there is absence of measurements. And all of a sudden, we've been doing all sorts of things. We've been emphasizing on exams. We've been emphasizing on this. Different actors have actually have different goals. And so when you measure it, we are, as much as we are measuring learning crisis, we are also measuring uh, incoherence. We are measuring this kind of different goals among different actors. That has been the prevalent situation. And so what we are trying to manage learning crisis is actually trying to manage that incoherence. So it's what we need to do is how do we then bring these actors in terms of alignment of objectives such that don't let us just talk about the numbers of people that are not learning. When we talk about the solutions, let's talk about, let's parents see their role in that process. Let the teachers, let them see what they need to be doing. Um, because sometimes teachers come to school, they enter the classrooms, but if that is not making um, any progress, we need to ask the question, what did the teacher need to do so that everybody is on the same line? The teachers, the parents, the government, the curriculum bodies. So I think 
it's in a way is an exercise to bring every of the key actors together. And how do we bring them together? And I think it's one of um, we need to create a system whereby people actually we could we could speak together. We need to also create a data system that we can really see whether they are um, moving in terms of objectives wise. Are they working um, in order to reinforce the goal of learning, or they are working at variance towards it? So measuring it and creating a kind of platform where they, we speak about it and we track it, I think it's what we need to start doing. But I think it also brings the role of the donors there. Um, I mean, it's not just about funding big interventions, the big um, innovations, but also we need to be part of the solutions. And how do we be part of the solutions? Um, interventions to really address the inquiries, bringing them together, um, ensuring that we are thinking along the same kind of well-defined objectives around learning. I think it's part of what we need to actually have a concerted effort on. So it's not a kind of tragedy. It's a kind of journey towards what we need to achieve in terms of reversing the long period towards which we've left, not in, we, we've not understand the system and we have allowed everyone to actually work at variance from one another. So bringing that um, various people in that system together. And I think that's actually what the right system uh, work really, really try to um, emphasize. So maybe I'm saying it the way rice uh, 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 system framework really is suggesting that we actually need to think about this problem as a systemic problem um, whereby we have not actually been working hand in hand, we have not actually been working towards the same purpose, and we need to actually change that narrative. And I think that's the starting point to addressing the problem. Absolutely, that's quite crazy, I must agree. So measuring learning and everything that goes on around school and uh, alignment of goals or and coherence across the different uh, actors, these are very, very crazy messages. Thank you, Deji. So, Deji, thank you very much for appearing on the RISE podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at RISE Program. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE program through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.